Amen. You can be seated. My name is Ross Anderson. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Alpine Church. And today, we're in our second series, a second week of our new series. We're calling it The Pursuit. And here's what we're doing with that series. Jesus said to go, he, he called the church to go and make disciples. And what that means is that he's invited uh, us, he's given us this commission to invite people to know him and, that, and to help those people then know how to follow him and how to live their, their life for him. And so he says, go and make disciples. That's our mission as ordinary Christians. It's our mission as a church. Make disciples not of a church or of religion. To make disciples not of, of some kind of a, a philosophical system or, or not of some uh, spiritual leader or, or whoever it is, but to make disciples of Jesus. And in this series, what we're looking at is the basics of what that actually means and what that looks like. Because we talk about that all day long and 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 never really get to a point of saying, well, what does that mean to do that? How do I do that? That's what we're looking at today. And in this whole series, we're really speaking to, to two kinds of people that we want to share this, in, this material with. The first one is maybe you are new to the whole God and Christianity and Jesus thing, and you're, you're sorting it out still, and we want to help you understand who Jesus really is and what it means to follow him so that you're aware of what that decision entails and, it, and you can see why it matters. It's the most important decision a person could make in their life. Or maybe you're still exploring that. You're coming to grips with that and, and, and trying to figure it out. Or maybe you're coming from a different faith background and you're ready for a reset. You're going like, help me to figure out what the differences are and what it really means. I know what my faith background was all about. Now help me understand what the Bible is saying to us. Or maybe you've made a faith decision recently and you're still sorting out and learning what that means, the implications of that decision for your everyday life. And so that's, this series is, is for you. But on the other hand, maybe you've been a Christian for a while, but you haven't ever had really the opportunity to invest personally in making disciples in your own life. You say, well, that's for somebody else. I don't even know what that means. And, and we want to encourage you to track with this series so you learn how to do that. Now, maybe you've been faithful in church, and you know what? Thank you for that. We appreciate that so much. But you've never had the privilege of mentoring someone else in your faith, whether it's your own family or whether it's, it's someone that you know who needs to have someone come alongside. And so what we're trying to do is, in this series, we're asking you to pay attention to the things we're saying so that as you master the basics, you'll know what to say and you'll know how to approach that person that God gives you an opportunity to help them in their life. And so... This, pay close attention to the things we say because these will be the kind of things that you'll end up saying that will help give you confidence to be able to have that role in the life of somebody else. Now, last week, we saw that God wants to be found by us, that God wants a relationship with you and I. And today, then, to follow up on that, the kind of the next step on that is that God has revealed himself to us Primarily through his son Jesus Christ, but with the way we know him and the way we know God's heart and mind for us is through his written word, the Bible. That's how God has made himself known. That's the vehicle for us to have relationship with him. So we're going to talk about the Bible today. Can the Bible be trusted? Is the Bible relevant? Is the Bible reliable? Those are some foundational questions. We put this at the very front of the series. 
because the whole rest of the series depends on our confidence in, trust in the Bible. So we're looking at three reasons to trust the Bible. We're going to quote it continually throughout the whole series. Everything we learn about what it means to be a follower of Jesus comes from the Bible, so we better figure it out. Now, if you think about it like this, here's a a background thought. Everything in life comes down to your structure of authority. We all have a structure of authority, and I don't mean like who's telling you what to do, like your boss or whatever. I mean, what are the voices, what are the sources that we look to to determine what is true and real and right? That's your authority figure. That's the authority voice. So, so how do you know what you believe, and, and how, do, how are you going to live? Maybe for you, your authority in the past has been a church or a religious system. Or maybe your authority is tradition. You don't want to go against tradition. Or the culture around us. Or some particular spiritual leader. Or maybe your authority is a political system. And that's how you decide what reality is based on the political system that you believe in. For a lot of Americans today, probably the majority, maybe your authority is just yourself. You say, here's, what I, here's how I know what's real and true and right is the stuff that I prefer or the stuff that makes me feel good. Operationally, that's how people really act, isn't it? Well, for Christians, God is our final authority. God is the one who decides what's real and right and true. And we can know his mind and his heart and his priorities because he's spoken to us in the words of Scripture, in the Bible. So consider, for example, how this works. So think about all the tough issues that our society faces today. And you can think of right off the top of your head, debates that are going on all over the So, so how, how is it that you think a certain way about those things? How did you come to your opinion about those things? Well, that's the answer is probably based on what your authority is in your life. How did you come to your, your way of understanding? For me, to the best of my ability, my authority, I want it to be the Bible. I'm striving for it to be the Bible. So, for example, what I believe in my attitudes and what I practice about money is I, I, I hope that I'm doing my best for that to be rooted in the Bible. What I think about the issue of race and the meaning of race in our culture and society today, I, to the best of my knowledge, that's rooted and based on what the Bible says about hum, human beings and race. What I believe about social and economic justice, I, I'm trying not to take that from some social system or political system or Marxism or whatever. I'm trying to take that from what the Bible says about those things. And so my views on, say, abortion or on marriage or on human sexuality or on gender or whatever it might be, to the best of my knowledge and ability, I'm trying to build that on the Bible and what the Bible says. See, that's what I mean when I say it's our final authority for how we believe, what we believe, how we live, for our pursuit of God, but really for every aspect of our life as well. That's why it's important for us today to know that you can trust the Bible. There's a lot of reasons why we can trust the Bible. We're just going to touch on three main reasons today. The first one is historical evidence. Ancient manuscripts and archaeological digs have stacked up in favor of biblical reliability. You know what? Anybody can write a book and say it's true, right? 
especially if, it's, if it purports to report what happened in history, how would you test whether it's true or not? Well, you test it by comparing it to history. So ancient books like the Bible can be tested against history and archaeology and, and, and things like that. And so <clears throat> there's a lot of ways to do that. One way that we test the Bible is to say, well, are there, how many manuscripts are there of the Bible that help us understand what it was really written compared to other ancient books and other ancient works? And so we're going to ask two questions, um, how many and, and how reliable, right? So we're going to compare the Bible to other ancient books that people trust, books that writers and authors that people take for granted, and, and we're going to see how the Bible stacks up to that. So first of all, uh, we're talking about how many, and you can see, um, I want to start with <clears throat> the philosopher Aristotle. Without going into a lot of background, Aristotle, great Greek philosopher uh, from about 350 B.C. Um, how do we know what Aristotle really said, what he really wrote? It's tremendous influence historically. How do we know what he really wrote? And remember, before the printing press in the uh, 14th century or 15th century, everything, every manuscript, every document was copied by hand and copied the copies of copies and so forth. So, so how do we know that all these copies they made reflect what the original writer, Aristotle, actually said? Well, for Aristotle, there's 49 actual existing copies, uh, manuscript copies of Aristotle's writing. Well, how about Homer? Homer wrote the Iliad. That's the story of the Trojan War. You saw the movie, right? And, and, or, and he wrote the Odyssey. Well, for Homer, there are 643 copies, manuscript copies, of Homer's writings, okay? Well, and now remember, for all these original texts, again, there's no originals around. There's only copies. But how many copies of the Bible? Here's the difference. For the New Testament, there's, over, there's almost 5,700 manuscript copies of the, of the New Testament. In Greek, the original language was written. Now, they're not all full copies. They are fragments, some of them, and portions of the New Testament. But there's over 5,700 witnesses of what the apostles originally wrote. And, and over 19,000 copies in other languages that were translated from the original Greek. And so there's far more manuscript evidence for the Bible. Bible than any other ancient book. That gives us some confidence in what we have. That, well, the second question is, um, how reliable are those manuscripts? How do we know that the copies faithfully reflect the original? In other words, like, like weren't, were they changed? Were they tampered with in any way? It's a question of reliability. Well, well first of all, you need to know how the Bible was copied. So the Old Testament, for example, was copied by a whole community of scribes called the Masoretes, and they came up with what's called the Masoretic text. And so the Masoretes, they had developed these strict rules for making copies. So they had a copy, they're going to make a copy so it could be widely distributed. They developed these really strict rules, this quality control process, because they revered God's word so highly that the goal was that they could they'd make no mistakes. Now, mistakes, mistakes were occasionally made. But if they found a mistake, they're, they're writing in ink on, on, uh, on um, parchment, on leather. And if they found a mistake, they would scrape the whole parchment clean and start over again. And so the result of this process is revealed by the Dead Sea Scrolls. We're going to look at that in a minute. But how reliable then? Well, Aristotle, the earliest manuscripts that we had, copied manuscripts of Aristotle, the, uh, the latest one, the earliest ones date from about 1100 A.D., okay? Aristotle wrote 
about 350 B.C. There's this almost 1,500 years of gap between the copies and the originals. We trust, we trust the, what Aristotle wrote. The Masoretic text in the Bible, the earliest copies of the Old Testament that, we've, that we had were about 800 A.D. Now, by comparison, for example... The book of Isaiah, that's 1,500 years after the book of Isaiah was originally written. But in 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, and, and there's manuscripts of virtually every Old Testament book that were found in there. They were, they were hidden in caves in the arid desert of, of uh, Israel to protect them from the Romans. And so in the Dead Sea Scrolls were written about 150 B.C., so we closed the gap to the originals by like 700 years. But what happened was the question when these were found and, and they began to discover and unroll them and study them, scholars were asking the question, well, how much of the Old Testament text has been changed over the course of that you know, 700 years? How much has been altered? Well, the very best preserved item in the Dead Sea Scrolls is a, is a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And I've had the opportunity actually to, to, to look at, not the original, but to look at the photostatic copies of it. And I was able, when I was in school, to, to lay that side by side with the text of the Old Testament that is used today. To put them side by side. And we've discovered that the book of Isaiah, the, there's about 95% identity between the two versions. And when you look at the 5% difference, you say, well, that's a lot. But when you look at actually what they are, they're all minor variations, like confusing one letter for a similar letter, like in English, the lowercase h and lowercase n are very much alike. It just depends on how long you draw that, you know, that, that, that stem. Uh, and so same thing in Hebrew. There's, there's letters that are very similar you could see how one was confused for the other. Minor variations in spelling or, or grammar, but in that 5%, there's not one single variant that changes the meaning of any passage in Isaiah that gives us any question or casts any doubt on what Isaiah was trying to say to us. So we have this incredible reliability of the manuscripts of the Bible compared to any other ancient book. Now, one more thing about history and archaeology. <clears throat> Last month, Sally and I had the privilege of being able that we tra were traveling in England. We had the opportunity to go to the British Museum in London. And the British Museum, there's all kinds of artifacts there from civilizations that are spoken of in the Bible. Real places like Egypt and Rome and Greece and Babylon and Assyria, they're, they're established there by the, these artifacts. And what you see on the screen is from the Assyrian Empire... It's a stone monument erected by one of the Assyrian emperors to celebrate his victories over other nations around. And listed on that stone are the names of kings that we read about, kings of Israel that we read about in the Bible. So the Bible has all of this external confirmation that it's telling us the truth in what it says. Plenty of external evidence for it. So, in fact, <clears throat> whenever the... Whenever the Bible has been tested against historical records or against the independent findings of archaeology again and again and again and again and again. It has passed the test. We have reason for tremendous confidence in the Bible because of the historical evidence. Now, so, now here's the thing. The historical evidence of the Bible 
it can't prove to us that it was really from God. Right? It can, it can demonstrate that the Bible's reliable, <clears throat> that it tells us the truth. But how do we know that it's not just an excellent book of history? How do we know that it's actually from God? And so we're going to move on. Let's talk about another kind of evidence that, that takes us in that direction for sure. That's the textual evidence. A couple things going on here. The Bible contains 66 books written by 40 authors over the course of 1,500 years, yet it tells one unified story. I'm just amazed, and I hope you're impressed by the scope of the Bible. Have you ever thought about this? Forty different authors. They they lived in three different continents. They wrote in three different languages. They they covered, they spanned over multiple centuries. Most of them did not know each other, so that they're, they're not collaborating together on what they wrote. It wasn't a committee project. They were writing as they were led by the Holy Spirit to write. And they represent this very wide spectrum of personal and cultural and social backgrounds. And so let me just give you a taste of that from some of the different biblical authors. First of all, there was Moses. Moses was a Jewish slave who was adopted into the household of Pharaoh. He wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. Then 500 years later came David. David who grew up in a very tiny little town, a nowhere place on the back of the map but he became a warrior and a poet and a king. And then in the New Testament, you have Luke. He was Greek, not Hebrew. He was a 1,000 years after David, and he was an educated physician. Compare him to John. John was a, a Jewish fisherman from another small town uh, in the middle of nowhere. He was not educated. He was not sophisticated. He did not move in any of the halls of power or influence in Judaism. He, had four, he wrote four books of the, of the Bible, the New Testament. And again, you have, you have Paul who wrote a large chunk of the New Testament who was a highly educated, influential leader of Judaism who was a trained theologian who was an, a vigorous activist. He zealously persecuted the church, um, the Christians, before he actually became one himself. And that's just a taste of the variety of the kind of authors, and yet, in spite of all this, there's this tremendous unity in the message of the Bible. It's consistent. It builds on itself. Every single part of it makes sense in light of the whole. It's from the start to the finish, it tells one consistent, common story, the story of Jesus and who he was and why he came and what he did. And the unity of the Bible is so strong, in fact, that it suggests there's really only one voice, there's really only one mind behind it, that underlying all the variety of human voices, there was the integrating factor is the voice and the mind of God himself, who's the ultimate author of the Bible. Now, this unity is, is powerfully demonstrated through biblical prophecy, where there's many, many times in the Bible where Future events were foretold by certain writers hundreds of years uh, in advance. And then other writers, separate writers, generations later, would record and describe the fulfillment of that original prophecy that was made. And so, uh, for example, just let me give you a taste of this. Genesis 49, it says, 
The scepter will not depart from Judah, the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. It says this prediction that the future ruler would come from the tribe of Judah. He'd be someone who was honored by the whole world. That's a prophecy of the coming of Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 1, you see the record of the genealogy of Jesus that traces back to Judah, prophecy fulfilled. And then, for another example, Micah chapter 5 talks about the, the birthplace of Jesus. You, Bethlehem Ephrathah, you're only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come for you on my behalf, God says. Not just an ordinary ruler. 800 years in advance, Micah foretold that Jesus would be born in this little backwater town. And in Luke chapter 2, it tells how that happened. Exactly how. Now, Jesus' mother didn't even live in that town, but God orchestrated events of history, orchestrated the decrees of the Roman emperor, the census, to move Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem at just the right time of Jesus' birth. Now, humanly speaking, nobody could possibly predict that that would happen. And humanly speaking, nobody would after the, could after the fact could manipulate events and so forth to, to make sure that it happened the way that it was said it would happen. It just had to be God. Psalm 22. It, for, it foreshadows the cross. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? My enemies surround me. They pierced my hands and feet. They divide my garments among themselves. They throw dice for my clothing. That predates Jesus a thousand years, yet it's, it's uncannily accurate about the events of his torture and his death on the cross. Same with Isaiah chapter 53. And just take a look and see how closely that corresponds with what actually happened to Jesus in the last days of his life. Pierced for our rebellion, beaten so that we could be whole, whipped so we could be healed, unjustly condemned, buried like a criminal in a rich man's grave. All these things are, are eerily, amazingly specific. It's, it's not like... Nostradamus. You ever, if you've ever encountered Nostradamus or these, these so-called prophets, Edgar Cayce and others, you know, they're so vague. It, you can almost make up interpretations and make it fit anything. The Bible is so specific about this. And, and so when I look at this, I look at fulfilled prophecy. You know, that can only happen if the book has a divine origin. That's the powerful witness of the, of the voice of God, the hand of God on the Bible, because only an all-knowing, supreme God could actually make things happen the way that they were foretold to happen hundreds of years before. No human agency could do that. And so prophecy is one of the strongest evidences that this is actually the word of God for us. That's why the Bible takes precedence over every other voice, over every other source, that speaks into our lives about things. Now because of these kinds of prophecies, Jesus confronted the religious leaders of his day. In John chapter 5, he said, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. So the Bible prophecies, they point to Jesus. All of the unity of the Bible over all those centuries, through all those different authors, it all points to Jesus. He's the central character. He's the central message. It's God's message, and we can count on it. We can trust it. Now, <clears throat> there's one other kind of evidence. There's so much more we could say. We could do a whole week, every night, talking about this, these things. 
But let me just point you to one other form of evidence. I think this is a very powerful evidence of the reliability of the Bible, why we should have confidence in it, and that's personal evidence. The Bible's ultimately about Jesus, as we've seen, and the changed lives of his followers is the most compelling proof of its message. The Bible's not just ink on a page. It's living. It's powerful. It's like a sword in the hands of the Holy Spirit. It can penetrate our soul, penetrate our thoughts. It has this transformational force in our lives when we listen to it and put it into practice. It's able to bring about potent changes in people's lives. And, you know, countless, countless people throughout history can give testimony to that. You say, here's how the Bible changed my life. I could tell you all afternoon how the Bible has changed my life when you put it into practice. But I just want to just touch on three examples from, from the Bible itself. You have um, Peter, Thomas, and Paul. Just quick examples. Peter, Luke chapter 22. I'm not going to read the verse, but you can see in this verse, you might be familiar with this story. When Jesus was arrested, Peter denied that he ever knew him. Peter acted like this, this horrible coward and just said, no, I don't even know him. But that wasn't the end of the story. Because a few days later, Jesus sat down with Peter and he restored him. And he reinstated him, and he gave him this new mission. And Peter became a pillar of the early Christian church. In fact, he was so bold that he actually gave his life for his testimony of Jesus. Thomas. Thomas was another one of uh, the closest followers of Jesus. And after Jesus arose from the dead, he appeared to the other followers, the men and women who were closest to him. But Thomas wasn't there that, that night. And so he refused, and they told him, hey, Jesus came, and they told him about it, he refused to believe it. That's why he's called Doubting Thomas. But soon enough, he met Jesus, he saw the wounds, he professed his faith in him as Lord and God, and Thomas also went on, he, he died for his faith. The, the tradition says that Thomas founded um, the church in India as an apostle, and he ultimately died for his faith. And then there's the Apostle Paul. He was a die-hard Jewish Pharisee. You can see in this verse he has this unparalleled religious pedigree. And his mission in life was to persecute Christians. Then he met Jesus. He became one of those Christians himself. And then you see that Paul completely reevaluated everything in his life in light of this new orientation, he was transformed. His mission was transformed. He lived now to spread the good news of Jesus everywhere, and he too ultimately was martyred for his faith. See, the message of Jesus is powerful. The message of the Bible is powerful because it's the word of God, because at the heart of it is Jesus himself. And let me just add one more thing along these lines. It's not just countless individual lives that have been changed by the power of the Bible, but the Bible has changed human culture. You take all those lives together, you aggregate them, and you have cultures that have been transformed by the Bible. I'm reading a book right now. It just happened to coincide with this series. It's called The Book That Changed Your World. And he talks about how the Bible has changed life in every culture where it's, it's been adopted and followed and honored. The book that changed your world. Just a couple of quick examples. Uh, it is the value of every person. In our culture, we have this idea that every person counts, that every person has these rights, that these human rights. Well, you know what? That's not true in, every, in the cultures where the Bible hasn't been the center. In other cultures, they, they, people are expendable. 
but this idea that humans have dignity, that humans have rights, that's grounded in the Bible's teaching that all human beings are made in the image of God. And so if, if your culture doesn't believe that, then, then humans are expendable. Now, this principle has eroded in our culture in our day, but the idea of equal rights and personal worth is ultimately rooted in the Bible. That's why we have that idea. Uh, the second one, technology. Technology, now the writer of this book I've been reading is, is from India, and he contrasts Asian and Islamic cultures with cultures that have been rooted in the Bible. And, and he shows how technology did not develop in those other cultures. Because he says because of the creativity of God in the Bible and because of the biblical value of persons, technology developed in Europe where it did not develop in others because it became a way to improve the quality of life for ordinary people. But if people don't matter, then why would you develop labor-saving technology when you've got plenty of slaves or you've got plenty of lower caste individuals who can just do the work for you? It's a biblical value that created technology. And the third one he talks about is science. He talks about way more than this, but just how Asian and Islamic cultures never really developed science. Now, people made observations about nature and so forth, but there was never a systematic approach to understanding the laws of nature because he says in Hindu culture where he grew up, he says everything is only illusion. So why would you study that? Why would you try to make sense out of that? In the Bible, God created everything. So the assumption coming out of biblical culture is that everything is unified, that everything has purpose, that God's design can be discovered. And that impulse launched modern science in Western civilization. So here's just a few reasons why we trust the Bible, why it's our final authority for what we think and for how we live. But here, let me just close with this one thought. No amount of evidence can overcome an unbelieving attitude. I don't even use the word proof because proof means different things to different people. If you don't want to be convinced, you won't be convinced, no matter how strong the evidence is. If your mind is already closed, then all of the evidence doesn't make any difference at all. And Jesus addressed that in John chapter 7. He said, my message is not my own. It comes from God who sent me. Anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or is merely my own. He says there's an underlying attitude. If you're unwilling to do the will of God, if you're unwilling to submit to his authority and his truth, then your pursuit is over before it even started. But if you're willing to practice what you've discovered, if you're willing to let God lead in your life, then you will discover the truth. Because the teachings of Jesus, in fact, all the teachings of the Bible are from God. They're not from human beings. We can trust the Bible in our pursuit of God, and in fact, every aspect of our life. That's why we wanted to talk about this issue so early and begin with it today. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. You've spoken to us. Thank you that you've made your heart and your will and your mind and your priorities known to us. Thank you, Father, that uh, you haven't left us alone or, or without guidance in the universe, that you want to reveal yourself to us and that we can know you, we can know your son Jesus because you've spoken. And so, we, Father, we pray that we'd look at, think about today, what is the authority in my life? How do I determine what's real and true and right? Have I really looked at the Bible to say what it says about these things, what it says about my life, my choices, my beliefs, my ideologies, my worldview. And Father, in the 
weeks to come, we pray that your word, which is living and powerful, will have effect in our lives to conform us more and more to who you want us to be, who you made us to be. And so, Father, today we start just by saying, what's our attitude? What's our attitude toward your word? Do we trust it? And help us to know that we can have confidence in what you've said. We pray it in Jesus' name for his honor and glory. Amen.